Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss the truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality and that's why the central narrative is falling apart right now in the united states people should not be walking around with masks must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is we are americans while elections are sometimes messy this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, February 15th, 2023, the 756th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands, and if you can't, or you simply don't want to, keep listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms, and of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. I want to start off with a headline that caught my eye yesterday in Zero Hedge. And the headline is this. Not a single student can do math at grade level in 53 Illinois schools. Spry Community Links High School in the heart of Little Village in Chicago says its vision is to provide a challenging and supportive environment to enable our students to succeed in the 21st century. 
Number one on the school's focus list, increasing reading and math scores to or above grade level. But a look at state data that tracks reading and math scores for each Illinois school reveals two frightening facts about Spry. Not a single one of its 88 kids at the school can read at grade level. It's the same for math. Zero kids are proficient. Spry is one of 30 schools in Illinois where not a single student can read at grade level. 22 of those schools are part of the Chicago Public Schools, and the other eight are outside Chicago. The failure list in math is even longer. There are 53 schools statewide where not one kid is proficient in math. The absolute failure to teach even a single child to read and do math in so many schools is yet another indictment of the state's educational system. At Wirepoints, we covered in detail the failures of Illinois education across the state in a report called Poor Student Achievement and Near Zero Accountability, an Indictment of Illinois' Public Education System. The data comes straight from the Illinois State Board of Education. This column focuses on schools where 0% of kids are able to read or do math, but we could have just as easily looked at the 622 schools where only one out of 10 kids or less can read at grade level. That's a whopping 18% of the state's 3,547 schools that tested students in 2022. And only one out of 10 kids or less can do math at grade level in 930 schools. That's more than a quarter of all schools in the state. Defenders of the current system are sure to invoke COVID as the big reason for the low scores. But a look at the 2019 numbers show that the reading and math numbers were only slightly better than they are now. And it's probably worth noting, by the way, that we were told remote learning is essentially just as good as in-person learning. So there should have been no drop off at all, right? I mean, those policies were just to protect kids and teachers from COVID, and they weren't going to destroy the educational outlook for an entire generation. But whoops, I guess. Take Spry, for example. Just two of the school's 127 students in 2019 could read at grade level before the pandemic. In math, zero students were proficient. The failure isn't about money either. Data from the Illinois State Board of Education shows spending at Spry was already at $20,000 per student before the pandemic. Today, it spends $35,600 per student. What's really incredible is that many of these schools are rated commendable by the Illinois State Board of Education. That's the second highest of four, quote unquote, accountability ratings that a school can receive. Not a single one of the 113 students at Sandoval Senior High School can read or do math at grade level, and yet the school is commendable. Same with Ralph Ellison Chicago International Charter School. Over $24,000 spent on each of its 172 students, labeled commendable, and none of the students are proficient in either reading or math. In a sane world, Schools that don't and can't teach a single student the most basic of skills would be shut down. But here they carry on. The system thrives while students wither. And that is the key takeaway here. None of the traditional explanations for the underperformance of these schools applies. Sure, maybe they're in bad neighborhoods. Maybe kids don't have great parents at home. Maybe they're poor families. 
Maybe they have a really terrible environment out of school. But does that account for everybody? How were kids raised in the past? Poor kids have gotten educations. Poor kids around the world get educations. But not in Illinois. And why is that? I mean, we know that educational standards have been changed. We've had critical race theory and the gender nonsense and woke activism and a total revision of history. And all of that is being taught to these kids. But you might remember during COVID that there was a public discussion on Twitter involving professors, including math professors, about whether or not it was true that two plus two equals four. That was straight out of Orwell. And the math aspect is really stunning, too, because math is one of those very rare things that we can ascribe some sort of objectivity to. The rules of math are not supposed to be subjective. They're not subject to race or gender or any kind of oppression you might want to suggest. Performance in math might be a factor of those things, but the math itself is what it is. Math isn't the easiest subject for everybody to learn, but by and large, kids are able to learn math and always have been able to learn math until now. And naturally, Illinois, and particularly cities like Chicago, are blue states and blue cities, as blue as blue can be, from what we are told, from the results of obviously fraudulent elections. And we know what the educational agenda here is. It's not to create smart, capable young adults that can go out into the working world and contribute and take care of themselves. The educational agenda now, particularly for kids in public schools, is to turn them into proper wards of the state who will do as they're told because they need the state to provide for them. On some level, the ability to learn math goes right alongside the ability to reason. That's why if you study philosophy, part of the study of philosophy is the study of symbolic logic. It's basically the math of argument. In some way, math teaches you the mechanisms for reasoning in the first place. The rules of argument in some way mirror the rules of math. They are processes. And you have to be able to understand the process to understand how the parts end up producing the outcome. So what happens when people can't do math anymore? Math plus critical race theory is not math. It's an argument that critical race theory actually supersedes math, is more important than math, and affects the ability for math to be true and objective. And we've literally seen that argument made. We are watching as our society begins to turn our young people illiterate, which is the sort of thing you would expect in a totalitarian state. They don't need everyone's kids to be smart enough to figure out what's going on. That's actually harmful to them. They need people's kids to be smart enough to do what they're told and serve the function they're told to serve within a society. And then you have to layer on to that the understanding that many of the arguments about why the state is doing the right thing and everyone should obey are based on the science, the data, the math, as it's communicated to us through that series of other filters applied by these communists to end up with full compliance from the people. Think about how that worked during COVID. 
every day on the TV, they had all the numbers up and the numbers just kept growing. And because there are so many numbers there, well, math must be involved somehow, right? And if math is involved, math being true, that means these numbers are true. And if these numbers are true and these numbers are used to make the arguments about what everybody has to do, well, then those statements, that advice, that must be true too, because the numbers are true and math is true. And if you don't know anything about how math works or what it's useful for, you might just accept all of that reasoning. And it turns out maybe half our society did exactly that. People would say things like, hey, these lockdowns have no chance of working. Everybody knows that. And they're destroying society. And someone would respond, have you seen how many COVID deaths there are? How could you even say that? Well, hey, that makes zero sense whatsoever. But these are the sorts of things that people will readily accept from authority when they don't know how to think for themselves because they have been taught not only not to think for themselves, but they've been stripped of the ability to even do that because all the things they've been taught are wrong. And look where we end up. You might also remember in 2020 that people online, one of them I remember was the communist Yashar Ali, constantly talking about how the number of COVID deaths was now as big as a college basketball arena. That's how many people it was. It's 24,000 people. That's the same number that can fit in the Staples Center. Now we have 48,000 deaths. That's the number that can fit in Yankee Stadium. Now we have 75,000 deaths. That's the number that can fit in Soldier Field. Now we have 110,000 deaths. That would be like everyone at a Penn State football game dying all at once. And then sometimes he would compare the number of deaths to a number of 9-11s. We've had 35 9-11s because of COVID, and you think that lockdowns don't work? And it's like, all right, okay, Kami. Well, where are you now when there are 7,000 excess deaths per month that aren't related to COVID? Aren't you concerned about the two and one third 9-11s happening every month as a result of something that's definitely not the vaccine? It's amazing how they can manipulate the minds of people who were never taught to think. This is the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, in House Testimony, talking about the recent Cochrane study that confirmed once again that masks simply do not work. That the CDC is currently the only national or international public health agency that recommends masking two-year-old children. I'd like you to explain in detail the process and the timeline by which evidence such as this is used by the CDC to update, modify, or necessary withdraw current guidance. Great. Thank you for the opportunity to clarify on those points. So I believe you're referring to the Cochrane Review study. This is an important study, but the Cochrane Review only includes randomized clinical trials. And as you can imagine, many of the randomized clinical trials that were included in that were for other respiratory viruses, not COVID-19. Some of them were for COVID-19, just to be clear. But it is very different for COVID-19 because you have a, a, pre, a virus that a different from flu, potentially different from SARS or MERS, transmits before you actually have symptoms. So, it's also the case that the, one of the limitations in that study was clearly stated 
that um, people were not actually engaged in the intervention. So you actually have to wear the mask okay. for it to work. Okay. So there Dr. are Walensky? lots of studies now in Georgia. Dr. Walensky, why are we masking our kids today? You know, thank you. Also, so our guidance um, for school-based masking is related to our COVID-19 community levels. And fortunately, we're in a place now in this country where most of our country is in green or yellow, um, has uh, lower, um, low or moderate transmission or COVID-19 community levels. And in those situations, we actually don't recommend masking. We recommend it for high COVID-19 community so, levels. So what is your timeline for updating, reevaluating these guide guidance? You know, our masking guidance doesn't really change um, with time. What it changes with is disease. So when there's a lot of disease in a community, we recommend that those communities and those schools mask. When there's less disease in the community, we recommend that those masks can come off. So, okay, so it's just gonna continue. So she's addressing a Cochrane meta-analysis that confirms once again that masks don't work. A study of studies. There's no evidence anywhere in the world that masks work. And of course, we also have the evidence that masks don't work because they simply didn't work. And everyone knows that. They had absolutely no effect whatsoever. They didn't slow or stop transmission. They didn't protect anyone. But she's pretending to debunk this meta-analysis by saying that these randomized controlled trials, well, they're not good enough. See, on the flip side, Anthony Fauci uses the non-existence of randomized controlled trials to say, for instance, that hydroxychloroquine doesn't help with COVID and ivermectin doesn't help with COVID because there's no randomized controlled trial out there that says it does. And randomized controlled trials are Fauci's gold standard. And it's especially easy for him to demand that as a gold standard when he's the one who generally is controlling the funding for those studies. So he just says we're not going to do a randomized controlled trial on hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin for covid. And then to the public, he says there are no randomized controlled trials showing effectiveness for hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin for covid. Therefore, we can't use it. Now, Walensky is saying that standard is not good enough. And of course, all the studies are going to be flawed because of asymptomatic spread. So they can't actually track it because they don't know who has COVID unless they test for COVID using tests that don't work. And so if you don't include those factors into the study, well, of course, it's going to look like masks don't work. And she says that while knowing that there aren't any studies that show masks do work. So people still have to use masks. The CDC still has their guidance that people should use masks. The CDC doesn't set the rules, remember? They just give guidance. And then everyone aligned with the same agenda implements the rules and just says they're comporting with the CDC's guidance. There is always some way to dilute the responsibility on these things. And the standard for whether or not that guidance will be applied is based on something they call the prevalence of disease within a community. Now, they only know the prevalence of disease within the community based on, again, tests that don't work. But at the same time, people can be spreading the disease asymptomatically and not being tested. So it's possible that everybody has it and they're just not getting tested. It's possible that the prevalence of disease by that standard in a community is 100% and the CDC wouldn't know it. It's just green or yellow or orange or red. 
because we don't need to get caught up with things like the numbers and the data when we have colors to explain it instead. And what are the colors based on? Well, they're based on the CDC's best judgment in what to describe as a high prevalence of disease versus a low prevalence of disease. But the only way they even could know about the prevalence of disease is through testing and people aren't testing. And if asymptomatic spread is a real thing, then everyone should be wearing masks all the time because they don't actually have an idea of the prevalence of disease in any of these communities. It is all self-refuting. It is such utter nonsense, and it still makes sense to the sort of people who never learned how to think. This is essentially the science for people who can't read or do math, and the regime is producing more of those people every day at the fastest rates they can possibly produce them. That is the goal, because when people don't know anything, the state gets to make all the choices. Isn't it amazing that the system produces the result they want while we are told to look for answers everywhere but there? You can't ever blame the regime. You can't even notice that there is a system. They'll say things like, You really believe we don't want kids to learn? We invest more in education than anyone else. Okay, well, those, again, aren't the same things. What you're saying is that you're paying a lot of money to the teachers unions and to the school system as an entity, a business. There's nothing about the money that makes the education better. And we can see that because you're spending so much money. $36,500 a year is more than my top tier college education cost. Now, again, I'm not saying I have the world's best education or that I got that kind of value out of my college experience at all, but it was a top tier college. And yes, this was 20 years ago or so, but that's less than my college cost. And now they can't teach reading or math to children for the same price. And if this is the return to decency, if this is having the adults back in the room, if this is letting the serious people control things, well, at some point, maybe we're actually going to have to judge them based on the results of what they're doing. And when the results of what they're doing are continually the antithesis of their ostensible purpose, It might be time to think about whether or not there's something else going on, whether or not what's happening is intentional. It shouldn't be difficult to understand that the same people putting new age gender porn in schools don't really care too much about your kids getting a good education. So let's switch gears from the biomedical part of the coup to the intelligence community part of the coup. This is from Fox News on Monday. James Clapper accuses Politico of deliberately distorting letter on Biden laptop being Russian disinfo. Former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, accused Politico of having deliberately distorted an infamous letter signed by him and other intelligence officials about Hunter Biden's laptop being potential Russian disinformation. Then Politico reporter Natasha Bertrand obtained the letter for a story headlined Quote, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say, mere weeks before the 2020 election. 
There was message distortion, Clapper told the Washington Post's Glenn Kessler in an article published Monday. All we were doing was raising a yellow flag that this could be Russian disinformation. Politico deliberately distorted what we said. It was clear in paragraph five. And the Fox News story doesn't include a link to the letter, but let's take a look at the letter anyway. This is originally from Politico. This is paragraph five. We want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post by President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are genuine or not, and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement, just that our experience makes us deeply suspicious that the Russian government played a significant role in this case. And of course, I read this letter in its entirety on the podcast when it first came out and noted that what they were doing was hinting at, suggesting that the laptop was part of a Russian disinformation effort. They had no proof that it was. And DNI at the time, John Ratcliffe, said that the laptop was absolutely real. That was the actual word from the real intelligence community, not 51 former officials. But the media ran with it anyway. And Joe Biden repeated that lie on stage. Was Joe Biden also intentionally distorting the message of the 51 former intelligence officials, or is James Clapper just trying to dilute his responsibility and the responsibility of the 50 other former intelligence officials for spreading this massive lie throughout our country? And it seems pretty obvious that he is trying to cover his ass. Why didn't James Clapper, being the diehard patriot he is, come out and say at the time, hey, everybody, I think you're misunderstanding what we said in this letter. We said there is reason to be concerned that maybe this laptop, maybe this information came from somewhere else and that it might not all be authentic. Now, that would also be a lie because the entire thing is a lie. But that is the responsible thing to have done if you thought the media was distorting your message. He didn't do that at the time, and it's now been almost two and a half years. So why is he doing it now? A pretty clear answer is because now is when he might end up being held accountable for it. Now the country knows that the laptop wasn't fake. It wasn't Russian disinformation. And that letter in particular was the basis for calling it Russian disinformation throughout our entire society and for the censorship of the New York Post story about it. Clapper was one of 51 intelligence officials that signed the letter, which was written in October 2020, shortly after the New York Post first reported on the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. Clapper, along with at least a dozen other signees on the letter, endorsed Joe Biden for president that year. Bertrand, who was criticized by the Washington Post's Eric Wemple for her boosterism of the discredited Steele dossier, now works at CNN. So Bertrand is an asset of the Intel community and Politico kind of is as well, but it's their fault for claiming that the laptop was Russian disinformation, not the 51 former intelligence officials. It could never be their fault. They're intelligence officials. They know everything. And because they're so patriotic and just care about saving America, you can always trust them. 
If there's one thing to know about former intelligence officials, it's that you can always trust everything they say. And that's why they are such frequent guests on cable news shows. Another signer, former deputy director of national intelligence for analysis, Thomas Finger, told the Post that no one should be surprised by members of the media or politicians willfully or unintentionally misconstruing statements. No one who has spent time in Washington should be surprised that journalists and politicians willfully or unintentionally misconstrue oral or written statements, Finger wrote in an email. The statement we signed was carefully written to minimize the likelihood that what was said would be misconstrued and to provide a clear written record that could be used to identify and disprove distortions. Oh, yeah, of course. They were just suggesting ways that the laptop might be Russian disinformation, and they didn't know that the media who they handed this letter off to would think that what they meant was it is real Russian disinformation and that no one should trust the laptop. How did everyone else besides the former intelligence officials get it all wrong? Ah, they're so irresponsible. The only people you can trust, once again, are former intelligence officials. Kessler's fact check dinged Biden for declaring at a debate with Trump that the former intelligence officials had concluded the laptop was, quote, a Russian plan accusing Biden of exaggerating. Politico did not immediately respond to Fox News Digital's request for comment. The outlet told Kessler the article fairly and accurately reported on and summarized the intelligence officials letter. More specifically, the headline is a fair summary of their allegations. The subhead offers additional context and the first paragraph of the article hyperlinks to the letter itself, allowing readers to draw their own conclusion. And I've got to give it to Politico there. They are right about that. Politico's article definitely does include the letter from the 51 former intelligence officials. But naturally, no one who wants to believe that the Hunter Biden laptop is fake actually went and read that letter. They just took the word of the media and candidate Joe Biden that the 51 former intelligence officials had to be right. The intent of the letter was that this could be Russian disinformation Emphasis on could. It's a very important nuance, a distinction that people are always ignoring. Clapper also told The Washington Post. The Post also noted that another signer, former Defense Intelligence Agency Deputy Director Douglas Wise, told The Australian that signers believed the laptop was at least somewhat legitimate in order, quote, to make any Russian disinformation credible. So they knew the laptop was partially legitimate, but the Russians probably also threw a bunch of other stuff onto it. And so it would be impossible for anyone looking to know what was true and what was not. And therefore, you have to assume that the entire thing is not true. Otherwise, you're not being responsible. Finger agreed and said the best disinformation campaigns are based on factual information. From my experience, the most effective disinformation campaigns, what were called Soviet active measures when I first encountered them during the Reagan administration, built on factual information, Finger said. Pure fiction is less likely to fool target audiences. I suspect but do not know that other signers have drawn the same conclusion, he continued. And isn't that amazing? He just explained the process for how Soviet active measures work 
while doing one of them himself. He's saying that the disinformation effort by 51 former intelligence officials contained within it truths in order to make people believe it. And that's what the word could is doing there. It could be Russian disinformation. We're not just saying it is Russian disinformation. That would be too hard to convince people of without any evidence whatsoever. And there never has been, by the way, any evidence whatsoever that any part of Hunter Biden's laptop is a Russian disinformation effort. But you see, their expression of doubt in what they were saying actually is the part that lends them credibility. And therefore, they can say that whole thing and not say a word when everybody in the country interprets their letter incorrectly. And what is the response from child-brained communists about information like this? Oh, that was so long ago. That was two and a half years ago. Like, why do you even focus on that anymore? It's time to move on. We've all moved on. The country has moved on. Why don't you move on? Well, okay, Kami, but it's a little hard to move on when the presidency of the most powerful nation on earth has been usurped through election fraud and various coups, some of which being run by members of our intelligence community. That's not the sort of thing you move on from if you still want to have a country. So why would all of a sudden three former intelligence officials who signed this letter be coming out to claim that they never actually said the laptop was Russian disinformation? That was what the media did. That's how they interpreted it. And it's too bad that the fake president said that during a debate. But again, it's not their fault. After almost two and a half years, why would they be doing it now? Sounds to me like pure unbridled panic. Someone who's not panicking in the least is is President Donald J. Trump. Yesterday, he released a statement by President Donald J. Trump on the witch hunt of January 6th. Recently, it was shockingly revealed that Twitter colluded with the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to rig and steal the 2020 presidential election in favor of Joe Biden and to deplatform and illegally censor me. As a key example of the corruption within the FBI, Special Agent Charles McGonigal, the head of the now fully debunked Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, has recently been arrested for being paid off by receiving large amounts of money from, get this, Russia. The Russia witch hunt was extremely detrimental to the Trump campaign's effort to win the 2020 presidential election. I have been newly reinstated on Twitter and various other social media platforms, and my tweets, which were taken down by big tech censorship and thus seen by very few, have just been made public. My clear and unequivocal statements on January 6th, 2021, which I conveyed to my over 100 million followers, are no longer under wraps. The highly partisan January 6th committee did not want these messages to be part of the historical and legal record, but they have now been fully restored, a sad shock to what I call the unselect committee of political hacks and thugs. The two exonerating tweets and the Rose Garden video, which were posted in the early afternoon of January 6th, 2021, and attempted to be hidden by the unselect January 6th committee, clearly and unquestionably state my desire that all protesters be peaceful and follow the law. They are. And he posts the two tweets from January 6th, 2021. The first, I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. No violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order. Respect the law and our great men and women in blue. 
Thank you. The second tweet. Please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. These messages are consistent with a major theme of my speech on the ellipse in front of perhaps the largest crowd I have ever spoken before, that the attendees were there to, quote, peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. And he puts in parentheses, speaking about the size of the crowd, that it is seldom mentioned only a tiny percentage of that crowd actually went to the Capitol. It is doubtful that any president has ever been so clear or concise about wanting peace and harmony, and certainly not conflict. My speech, statements, and tweets are absolute proof that I acted legally and appropriately, in addition to the fact that, as president, I have complete and total immunity. These tweets were concealed from the public's view for almost two years because the former executives of Twitter followed the wishes of Joe Biden and the FBI in censoring me and canceling my account. Now that these new statements on Twitter and Facebook have emerged, having a widespread and very positive impact on me, it is paramount for all examining the events of January 6th, 2021, to be aware of this new and irrefutable information, as nothing can be more obvious as to its meaning, a meaning that was withdrawn from the public by Twitter's censorship and the January 6th unselect committee's lack of effort to find them. Nevertheless, these vital and determinative statements have now been made available again for all to see. Moreover, I posted on Facebook parallel messages, clearly calling on all of my loyal followers to remain peaceful. But these statements were also censored shortly thereafter when I was wrongfully suspended on that platform. These two key posts on Facebook have been kept from public view for almost two years and have only been recovered and made available through reinstatement of my Facebook account. The terribly biased January 6th committee ignored this key part of the legal and historical record because the partisan members of that committee did not want to acknowledge the fact that such statements totally and completely exonerate President Donald J. Trump. And he includes the Facebook posts, which are exactly the same as his tweets. Likewise, the ridiculous and dangerous remarks made by a woman named Cassidy Hutchinson have been fully refuted by the U.S. Secret Service. In addition, prior to January 6th, I strongly recommended that 10,000 to 20,000 National Guard troops be used to secure Washington, D.C. and the Capitol because, from everything I had heard and was being reported, a very large crowd was expected. Even if only 500 troops had been used, violence would have been completely avoided. Instead, in an act of arrogance, Nancy Pelosi and D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, who are in charge of capital security, rejected the calls for the presence of the National Guard to maintain order because they didn't, quote, like the look. This information is laid out in detail and corroborated in the report by the Department of Defense's Inspector General and in a definitive account authored by then acting Secretary of Defense, Chris Miller. Secretary Miller writes, On January 3rd, I met with President Trump in the Oval Office to discuss international threats unrelated to anything happening on the home front. At the end of our meeting, he asked about preparations for January 6th. Specifically, he wanted to know if there had been any requests for National Guard support, and I informed him of Mayor Bowser's request. You're going to need 10,000 people, President Trump said bluntly. Secretary Miller goes on to share the following deeply troubling anecdote. 
I pressed D.C. officials about the number of cops that would be on duty on January 6th and their disposition. Our entreaties were met with a borderline condescending lecture by the D.C. Metropolitan Police official on the call that the planned force of 8,000 to 10,000 law enforcement officers were capable of handling up to a million demonstrators. Capitol Police Union President Gus Papathanasiu blamed January 6th on, quote, a disastrous collapse of leadership that was, quote, months and years in the making. Later adding, quote, our officers did their jobs. Our leadership did not. Scared of being exposed, Nancy Pelosi blocked Papathanasiu's testimony in front of Congress. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund, who resigned shortly after January 6th, 2021, quote, testified that Nancy Pelosi's then Sergeant at Arms Irving said optics were the reason for not sending in the National Guard. Pelosi and Bowser are to blame. On January 5th, 2021, Mayor Bowser even sent an official letter to Army Secretary Ryan D. McCarthy, which erroneously stated that, quote, the Metropolitan Police Department is prepared for this week's First Amendment activities. The District of Columbia, and this part is in capital letters, the District of Columbia is not requesting other federal law enforcement personnel and discourages any additional deployment. And here the capital letters end without immediate notification to and consultation with MPD if such plans are underway, end quote. As it turned out, Pelosi and Bowser could not have been more wrong, and their leadership failures allowed for violence that could have been avoided if my request had been followed. In fact, once the belated calls for National Guard support finally came, the National Guard successfully deployed in two hours and 20 minutes, which may be the fastest such deployment in U.S. history, and only because they were ready based on my previous recommendation. I assumed having additional and very powerful security was a no-brainer, but Nancy Pelosi and Mayor Bowser disagreed with me and did not want it. And this is absolutely one of the most critical parts of the historical record about this event. They made the National Guard available in advance. Nancy Pelosi and the leadership in Nancy Pelosi's daughter's documentary, parts of which were used for the hearings of the sham January 6th committee showed Pelosi and the leadership calling in the National Guard. People on Twitter were saying Nancy Pelosi was the president that day. The only way she was able to call the National Guard in is because they were already at the ready. Donald Trump had already approved of their use. Chris Miller said in interviews last week and in his book, which I have read, by the way, and it's a wonderful read, even apart from how informative it is. Chris Miller's a fantastic writer. It was just a pleasure to read, and I hope you read it. But he said in that television interview and in the book that he didn't have to talk to Donald Trump that day, and he didn't talk to Donald Trump that day. Donald Trump delegated authority in the legal and proper manner so that Chris Miller would have National Guard troops at his disposal in the event that Muriel Bowser and Nancy Pelosi decided they were necessary. But they didn't want the National Guard in there beforehand. And you have to wonder why that is. We know about the presence of infiltrators and instigators, agent provocateurs. We know about the Capitol Police involvement and instigation of the violence that day. 
the video of their mistreatment of innocent protesters is widely available. And perhaps that's what the National Guard could have prevented if they were there. Maybe that is what Donald Trump means when he says that the violence of that day didn't have to happen. It could have all been prevented. Back to the statement. I also recorded a video message on January 6th in which I strongly stated, quote, we have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt, end quote. Again and again, I urged everyone, quote, to go home now, go home, go home and go home in peace. He repeated those messages throughout that video statement, and anyone can go back and watch the statement, which is now once again available on his social media. This video was wrongfully and illegally doctored and misrepresented by the unselect committee. They did not want to show the full video because it, again, clearly proves that I called for peace, calm and unity. It showed that I love our country and demand its protection. My statements encouraging peace and patriotism stand in stark contrast with other officials who have consistently and irresponsibly called for violence and extremism. For example, Maxine Waters encouraged her supporters to, quote, get more confrontational, end quote. And Chuck Schumer threatened, quote, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions, end quote. The referenced videos show many other incendiary remarks, which preceded recent extraordinary violence. Yet despite those horrible and hate-filled words and violence, there has never been any effort to hold these politicians responsible or accountable for their wrongful statements, despite the death and destruction caused. On the other hand, Throughout my speech on January 6th, I made clear to the military and law enforcement, quote, we want to thank you, the police and law enforcement. I talked about the movement's, quote, extraordinary love filled with people who, quote, built this nation, not the people that tore down our nation. I urged all to, quote, cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women and peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. These quotes do, again, fully exonerate me and should put an end to the national nightmare of weaponized, targeted and dangerous witch hunts and hoaxes against a certain political party and me. So this is not the first time that Donald Trump has put out similar statements that directly refute the entire purpose of the January 6th committee's investigation into what happened that day. And of course, Right after January 6th, in the weeks that followed, we had the second fake impeachment after Donald Trump had already left office, which was an attempt to put Donald Trump on trial in front of the nation for something that at the time everyone was very, very, very upset about. But despite all eyes being on those hearings and everyone having at least some awareness of what they were told happened on January 6th, That impeachment went nowhere and Donald Trump was exonerated there as he is everywhere else. But this statement serves more of a narrative purpose. This story comes around and around and around. And each time it comes around, the general public learns a little bit more about the reality of January 6th. It would be nice if everybody could just realize the truth at once and wake up and give up that whole ridiculous story. But that's not how things work. 
And so the repetition is necessary. And each time the process is repeated, there are more people open to hearing the truth about January 6th than Donald Trump's involvement, his statements, and the fact that he had approved 10 to 20,000 National Guard troops to protect the Capitol that day and was turned down. That's a very strange thing for a president to do while that president is also planning a very violent insurrection to overthrow our democracy. But the get Trump lunacy never ends. And yesterday there was an article that appeared in Rolling Stone by a man named Asawin Subsang and his co-writer Patrick Reese. Now, Subsang is a very popular Twitter personality. He is a complete and total communist propagandist, but he is like one of the Twitterati. People take him very seriously, and he gets to go on all the big podcasts. This is the headline from the article. Trump plans to bring back firing squads and group executions if he retakes White House. What do you think of firing squads? That's the question Donald Trump repeatedly asked some close associates in the run-up to the 2024 presidential campaign. Three people familiar with the situation tell Rolling Stone. You got that? Three people familiar with the situation. It's not an idle inquiry. The former president, if reelected, is still committed to expanding the use of the federal death penalty and bringing back banned methods of execution, the sources say. He has even, one of the sources recounts, mused about televising footage of executions, including showing condemned prisoners in the final moments of their lives. Now, that's pretty juicy. Why would he want to do that? Specifically, Trump has talked about bringing back death by firing squad, by hanging, and according to two of the sources, possibly even by guillotine. He has also, sources say, discussed group executions. Trump has floated these ideas while discussing planned campaign rhetoric and policy desires, as well as his disdain for President Biden's approach to crime. In at least one instance last year, according to the third source who has direct knowledge of the matter, Trump privately mused about the possibility of creating a flashy government-backed video ad campaign that would accompany a federal revival of these execution methods. In Trump's vision, these videos would include footage from these executions, if not from the exact moments of death. The former president believes this would help put the fear of God into violent criminals, this source says. He wanted to do some of these things when he was in office, but for whatever reasons, didn't have the chance. A Trump spokesman denies Trump had mused about a video ad campaign. Quote, more ridiculous and fake news from idiots who have no idea what they're talking about. The spokesman writes in an email, either these people are fabricating lies out of thin air or Rolling Stone is allowing themselves to be duped by these morons. Trump's enthusiasm for grisly video campaigns has been documented before, including in an anecdote from a former aide that had the then president demanding footage of, quote, people dying in a ditch and, quote, bodies stacked on top of bodies so that his administration could, quote, scare kids so much that they will never touch a single drug in their entire life, 
And if there's one thing besides 51 former intelligence officials that you know you can trust, it is an anecdote from an unnamed former Trump aide. So really could be anybody. Asked about firing squads and other execution methods, the spokesman refers Rolling Stone to lines from Trump's 2024 campaign announcement. Quote, every drug dealer during his or her life on average will kill 500 people with the drugs they sell, not to mention the destruction of families. We're going to be asking everyone who sells drugs gets caught selling drugs to receive the death penalty for their pain. And Trump has been hammering that point pretty hard when discussing drug dealers. He's talking about drug traffickers, probably people having to do with the cartels, but it's at least worth staying open to the possibility that he includes among those identified as drug dealers, members of big pharma and perhaps pharmacists and psychiatrists themselves who are profiting from the overprescription of drugs that do harm and kill Americans. And now, obviously, that's my personal speculation, but we will have to wait and see. At an October rally to cheers and applause from his audience, Trump pitched a form of supposed justice that has been embraced by some brutal dictatorships, quote, and if the drug dealer is guilty, they get executed and they send the bullet to the family and they want the family to pay for the cost of the bullet. Trump said at the rally, if you want to stop the drug epidemic in this country, you better do that, even if it doesn't sound nice. The former president's zeal for the death penalty has already proven lethal. During the final months of his administration, he oversaw the executions of 13 federal prisoners. Since 1963, only three federal prisoners had been executed, including Oklahoma City bomber and mass murderer Timothy McVeigh. In January 2021, in the final stretch before Biden would become president, Trump oversaw three executions in four days. In conversations I'd been in the room for, President Trump would explicitly say that he'd love a country that was totally an eye for an eye. That's a direct quote. Criminal justice system. And he'd talk about how the right way to do it is to line up criminals and drug dealers before a firing squad, says a former Trump White House official. And again, they never, ever lie or get anything wrong. You've just got to kill these people, Trump would stress. This ex-official notes. He had a particular affinity for the firing squad because it seemed more dramatic rather than how we do it, putting a syringe in people and putting them to sleep. The former White House official adds he was big on the idea of executing large numbers of drug dealers and drug lords because he'd say, quote, these people don't care about anything, end quote, and that they run their drug empire and their deals from prison anyway. And they get back out on the street, get all their money again and keep committing crimes. And therefore, they need to be eradicated, not jailed. Trump's firing squad fixation may address his desire for the dramatic, but some experts believe that an instant death by gunshot may be more humane than lethal injection. There's pain, certainly, but it's transient, according to Dr. Jonathan Groner, a professor of surgery at The Ohio State University College of Medicine. If you're shot in the chest and your heart stops functioning, it's just seconds until you lose consciousness. Rules made during Trump's presidency made federal firing squads more feasible. Previously, lethal injection was the only permissible federal method of execution. 
But under the administration's new rules, if lethal injections are made legally or logistically unavailable, the federal government can use any method that is legal in the state where the execution is located. The rule took effect on December 24th, 2020, and thus far has not been applied. All 13 Trump era executions were done by lethal injection, but the expanded methods of execution could be relevant in the future. Opponents of the death penalty have pushed drug makers to withhold the drugs needed to conduct lethal injections, complicating efforts to impose capital punishment. In Indiana, home to the Terre Haute facility where most federal executions are conducted, the new policies, quote, legally open the door for the authorized use of firing squads, electrocution or the gas chamber. The Indianapolis Star reported at the time. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? So opponents of the death penalty, people who do not want to see federal executions, have pushed the drug makers to withhold the drugs needed to conduct lethal injections, thereby attempting to make lethal injections legally or logistically unavailable, as noted in Trump's DOJ's amendment to the rules about federal executions. The understanding here being that if lethal injection is the only way to conduct executions and they take away the ability for lethal injections to be performed, well, then there's no way to actually carry out a federal execution. So their attempt to fully ban federal executions by using this workaround, this loophole, are thwarted by the amendment passed by Donald Trump's DOJ. Former Attorney General Bill Barr, the ideological architect of Trump's execution binge, told Rolling Stone in December that Trump and his administration would have had more people put to death soon had he won a second term in 2020. Yes, that was the expectation, Barr succinctly summarized in a phone interview. There are 44 men on federal death row. The only woman on federal death row in modern times was Lisa Montgomery, who Trump and Barr put to death on January 13th, 2020. And where is the left saying how sexist that is? 44 to 1? It's like 50-50 men to women. Shouldn't we have equity in the people on death row? Why aren't there more women? There could soon be a 45th prisoner on federal death row. The Justice Department is seeking the death penalty for convicted domestic terrorist Seifulo Saipov, who steered a truck onto a bike path and pedestrian walkway in New York City on Halloween in 2017 and is set to be sentenced in federal court in the days ahead. Biden and his attorney general, Merrick Garland, implemented a moratorium on capital punishment, but the sentence would leave Saipov eligible for execution under a future president. So this story made the rounds pretty widely on social media yesterday. It's a great chance for communists like uh, Swin Subsang from Rolling Stone to play the orange man bad game. But it's not just that. And I put together a thread on Twitter yesterday talking about this new narrative about a future President Trump increasing the number of federal executions. I said, speaking of Donald Trump and the death penalty, it looks like we have the makings of a pretty extensive little info op of narrative seeding happening. It's gone wide today with this shrieking article from Rolling Stone. 
but it started a month ago. And I highlighted an article from the Associated Press with the headline explainer Biden in action mixed signals on death penalty. And the article was about how it was a priority for the illegitimate Biden administration to ban all federal executions, but that he just wasn't getting it done. And I'll read a couple of excerpts from that article. Advocates for abolishing capital punishment say mixed signals from the administration and silence from Biden, the first president to have openly opposed the death penalty, drives home that the Democrat has not made good on his campaign promises that so raised their hopes. So Joe Biden ran on ending the federal death penalty and federal executions, and he's just not getting it done, which is very upsetting to these advocates for abolition of the death penalty. Also from the AP article, others say his inaction makes it likely a future president will resume federal executions as President Donald Trump did in 2020 after a 17 year hiatus with 13 executions at a prison death chamber in Terre Haute, Indiana. During his last six months in office, Trump oversaw more federal executions than any president in more than 120 years. The Biden administration appears to have no understanding that inaction, if it continues, will result in executions, said Robert Dunham, who heads the nonpartisan Death Penalty Information Center in Washington, D.C. The Biden administration executions will be carried out by a future administration, but they will be Biden executions. And that's a lot of pressure for a fake president. If he doesn't permanently ban the death penalty, then all the executions going forward are his fault. Wow, that's pretty rough. It's notable once again that Biden seems powerless to act and actually accomplish what he was made fake president to accomplish. Why are people worried about future presidents and executions? Why are they so concerned about banning federal executions? Society didn't decide that. Right. We didn't all have a open public discussion about the morality of the death penalty and whether the death penalty is something we as a society are OK with. Why does the fake president get to decide that? Why is this conversation even being had? There is no loud public voice shouting for the end of the death penalty. Why are the powers that be in Biden's coalition pushing Biden to do something that he could ostensibly do, I guess, but can't actually get done, right? You got to think about that. Either Biden is or is not able to legally do what he's being asked to do in ending federal executions. If he's legally able to do it, then why can't he? And if he's not legally able to do it, why is he being pushed to do it? It's certainly not going to go through Kevin McCarthy's house as a bill that ever reaches Joe Biden's desk so Joe Biden can end federal executions, although I'm sure they'd like to create the public pressure to attempt that. There's no chance that's going to happen. So who are these powers that be who are controlling Biden and trying to push him into banning federal executions when it doesn't seem like he has any ability to do that? And why is this such a priority? Merrick Garland already suspended 
federal executions. So there aren't going to be any federal executions on Joe Biden's watch. They're not happening now. They're worried about a future president executing people. But the people who are worried about this and pushing Joe Biden to get it done are the very same people in charge of stealing elections. Okay, these people know that they steal elections and can dictate who the future president is. So, again, why are they worried about a future president bringing back federal executions? That's an awfully strange worry to have when you're in full control as the fake administration surely must be. I mean, that's what I'm told by never Trump people and deranged child brain communists all the time. Right. Trump is in no control. He lost. He's not in the picture at all. He just forces himself into the conversation because he's an egomaniac and a narcissist and he just wants all the attention. Right. I mean, that is what we're always told by these people. So if Joe Biden is in full control, why can't he get this done? Why are people who steal elections concerned about executions by future presidents when they are in control of who gets elected? And we're told that Joe Biden is very popular. I mean, he did get the most votes in electoral history. So why can't he get this done? But let's continue. The same writer in Rolling Stone published another article about Trump's executions less than three weeks ago on January 27th. The headline of that article is Trump's killing spree the inside story of his race to execute every prisoner he could. Donald Trump just out for blood. These people are insane. Honestly, what kind of Trump deranged communist nonsense is that? The article itself is absolutely hysterical. I know that people are like, are you crazy? How can you read this stuff and think it's funny? These people are insane. You're absolutely right. These people are insane. That's why it's funny. Swin Subsang is some twerpy liberal arts school socialist who thinks he's some bold revolutionary. The entire thing is a joke. You have to see it that way. I know there are people who believe it and go along with it. Those people are just as embarrassing as the guy doing the writing, maybe even more so. So in that article, Subsang actually talks about the Central Park Five. He writes, Donald Trump's enthusiasm for the death penalty dates back decades. His first real foray into politics was a public call for executions after five teenagers of color were arrested in the brutal rape and assault of a female jogger in New York City in 1989. Bring back the death penalty. Bring back our police screamed a full page ad Trump had placed in the New York Daily News at the time. The Central Park Five, as the young men came to be known, were later exonerated by DNA evidence after they had served years in prison. But Trump never apologized for the ad and Trump never should apologize for the ad because he's right. Swin Subsang is repeating the official story now the central narrative about the Central Park Five, that these guys were wrongly accused and not guilty of the crime, but nothing could be further from the truth. They were absolutely part of the gang that beat and raped this woman, and they were all out there doing it for fun. There are people who have actually compiled this research and been paying attention to it for the last, what, 34 years now? 
And the stories about the Central Park Five are absolutely not in doubt at all. If you would like to understand the truth of the Central Park Five stuff, if you have communists in your life who bring this up as an example of Trump's racism, go to this website. You can see videos of the accused and what they're saying about the incident. This incident is not in doubt. Trump has been right about this the entire time. The website is Central Park Five Jogger Attackers dot com. And the five is the numeral five. OK, Central Park Five Jogger Attackers dot com. Watch the videos for yourself. Learn the truth. Swin Subsang is trying to pretend that Donald Trump is not only a bloodthirsty murderer, but also racist. And of course, that means he wants to quench his thirst for blood with the blood of black and brown people. But the Central Park Five story, the way it is relayed to us now, is true in the same way the Breonna Taylor story is true, which is to say not at all. And again, you can simply learn this for yourself. What those guys did was heinous. And it's made even worse by the political involvement in that case during it and since and how they have used it to smear Donald Trump. But back to the propaganda from Swin Subsang. He cites the always credible former Trump official, as we've discussed before, the one who's always around to say what Trump once said. Trump, you see, is not only orange, he also wants to murder everyone and he's callous about it. And we discussed that in the context of the prior article. It's important to remember here that people do actually believe that Donald Trump, the man who ended wars and did not start new wars, loves murder. And why do they believe this? Well, it's because they accidentally walked themselves into a hate movement, as I have discussed many, many times. But wait, there's more. There's actually been pretty extensive coverage done on Donald Trump and the death penalty, both back near the end of his term and a new resurgence of it now. And I included an article that appeared in the now preposterous rag Vanity Fair by an absolute lunatic named Bess Levin. The headline of that article report Donald Trump's record setting executions were even more appalling than previously thought. From that article, new reporting reveals that Trump pushed his administration to carry out capital punishments to, quote, insulate him from criticism that he was soft on crime while showing little regard for the lives of the people on death row. And honestly, how could he disregard the lives of the people on death row who had already been sentenced to death? But you can't confuse a communist with thoughts like that. Bess Levin is essentially making the case here that Donald Trump was murdering people so that he wouldn't be seen as soft on crime. So now it's not just his bloodlust. It's just simple political pragmatism. And this is coming from the same people who brag that the current administration and Democrat policies are actually tough on crime. They have the right position on crime. Remember, they're letting all the little crimes go so they can focus on the really big crimes. You know, the real crime, not looting, for instance, or robbing people in broad daylight or doing drugs out in public. The real crime, even as that real crime continues to skyrocket. 
And again, what we have is absolute Trump derangement. He is not only a bloodthirsty killer, he is a bloodthirsty killer who will kill indiscriminately for his own political advancement. And here is the end of Levin's article in Vanity Fair. In the remaining days of the administration, Barr, quote, scheduled a string of back-to-back executions to squeeze in as many as possible before Biden moved into the White House, end quote with three occurring in Trump's penultimate week in office. These inmates were being exterminated. Kelly Henry, an attorney for Montgomery, told Rolling Stone, when you see the government flex its power that way with the cold, callous machinery of death, it's truly appalling, she added. The administration just didn't care. And Levin writes, meanwhile, Trump was commuting sentences and issuing pardons for the convicted criminals who'd worked on his campaign and for his son-in-law's father, among others. You get it? So the real criminals are not the people actually on death row. The criminals are the people around Trump in Donald Trump's inner circle. And he's just pardoning all of them. You see, Donald Trump doesn't care about real crime. What he cares about is satisfying his bloodlust for black and brown people. And again, it really is a hate movement. The criminals are the ones on the other side. They're the Trump side. That's where the real criminals are. Despite no evidence of any of the crimes, they continue to accuse people in Trump's circle of despite seven and a half years of constant investigation. But back to their project of trying to end federal executions. They've been working on this for years now. It hasn't worked. The fake president would have to do this through some totally legitimate, wink, wink, executive means. Congress won't do it. Is there some legal reason Biden can't? And this is from the Marshall Project on March 12th, 2021. The new attorney general, Merrick Garland, was only formally confirmed this week, so it's not clear how his leadership might shape the government's positions on capital punishment. During his last run at the DOJ, he prosecuted the death penalty case against Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. But this time around, he's already expressed concern about the use of the federal death penalty. Isn't that interesting? Merrick Garland was involved in the prosecution of Timothy McVeigh and had him put to death. During his confirmation hearings, he indicated the administration might follow the same de facto moratorium that Obama did. But federal public defender Sean Nolan, chief of the Pennsylvania office that has 11 clients on death row, said he hopes for more. One of our biggest concerns is if he doesn't commute the remaining people on federal death row. In four years, we would be right back where we were, he said. A moratorium is not good enough. We need more than that. And again, that article from themarshallproject.org, the headline, if you'd like to read it for yourself, was how Biden can reverse Trump's death penalty expansion. Rolling Stone wasn't actually the first outlet to call Trump's executions a killing spree. ProPublica framed it as a killing spree in late 2020. The headline of their article was Inside Trump and Barr's Last Minute Killing Spree. Trump's final cruelty is what the banshees at The New Yorker called it. But here again, it wasn't about Trump's bloodlust. It was just about political expediency. E. Tammy Kim, 
writing in The New Yorker, says, Hogue, the former federal defender, said that Bernard and others on death row have become fodder in a partisan debate. Historically, the death penalty has been used as a political tool. So the Trump administration in an election year looked at resuming federal executions, she explained. Despite the current administration's lame duck status and the facts of Bernard's case, Barr is rushing to exercise the government's ultimate power. The election year decision to resume and ram through so many executions is cynical and inhumane. An administration spurned by a majority of voters should not have the right to send Bernard or anyone else to their death. And that is E. Tammy Kim, a prominent communist writing for The New Yorker. She had decided that Joe Biden's very real legal American votes, those 81 million votes, meant that the people on death row could not and should not be executed. So Trump's executions were a big story and then they weren't. And now they're a big story again. So why now are they running out of time to get this done through the fake president? And what are the people pushing for this? So afraid of these people literally mandated lethal injections. And by that, I mean the covid vaccine. They were forcing people to get the injections or lose their jobs, even after it was widely known in the public, but denied by the media and the experts that the covid shots were killing and maiming people. Are we really supposed to pretend that those people and the people who are pro abortion up till the moment of birth and sometimes after really care about human life? They're not trying to save the innocent on death row. Can't we just all grow up? AP. So the Associated Press did a story about how Joe Biden is failing in his quest to end federal executions. How do you create the sort of public sentiment that would override Biden's ability to accomplish his task? You'd have to make the death penalty something toxic, something that Donald Trump did. It's Donald Trump's fault. And then you get to import the hate movement onto the issue of the death penalty and of federal executions. You tie it to Donald Trump. You tie it to conspiracy theories. You tie it to QAnon. You tie it to racism. You tie it to white extremist MAGA violence. And then you've got your incentive. You've got your public motivation. That's the narrative that's going to allow Joe Biden to push through his ban on federal executions. That's what they're gunning for. And what better way to accomplish that goal than by feeding it to the readers of an outlet like Rolling Stone, people who think that Sam Smith's performance at the Grammys, for instance, was artistic. Those kinds of people, Rolling Stone readers, convince them they all imagine that they're actually activists, but they're the cool activists, the type that are very hip to current music in Rolling Stone. Ooh, wow. These are the cultural influencers. Tell them that Donald Trump wants to kill people in federal executions and they will say no. And they'll convince the rest of society to say no, too. And then Joe Biden could do whatever he wants. So you give this narrative to Rolling Stone readers, because, of course, they'll be happy to hate Trump and call him a murderer. They'll be happy to start chanting it at music festivals for Instagram this summer. And so I've got to ask again, why in the world would the people who did COVID and everything else care about saving 13 people on death row? Again, the same people pushing Biden to do this are the ones who have no problem 
with paying members of MS-13 to kill people. You think they're trying to save people on death row? And by the way, you're like, wait, they pay MS-13 to kill people? Yeah, of course they do. Just look at Seth Rich, for instance. But people somehow really think that these people just care about black and brown people on death row. So we had all the coverage back in late 2020, and now we have this resurgence in the last few weeks of these articles about Trump's federal executions. So I've run through a number of articles from the American state propaganda outlets. And of course, global state propaganda outlets have covered this story as well. An article in the BBC from early 2021 carried the headline in Trump's final days, a rush of federal executions, despite showing article after article, pushing the same viewpoint, the viewpoint from the left, from the mainstream, from the central narrative. And that same viewpoint, the same emotionality, the same reasoning repeated throughout all of these articles from major anti-Trump outlets. You can see a pretty full and complete picture of what the regime wants people to think and wants people to believe. Where else do I turn for other information? Well, I can't post an article from RT, right? Russia Today. Those articles get flagged by Twitter still and get censored and banned. But either way, we're told that RT is a Russian state propaganda outlet. So my choices are American state propaganda, global state propaganda, or Russian state propaganda, right? That's what we're told. We know that the American media and that the global media are 100% regime propaganda. And we're told we're not allowed to read any Russian propaganda or Chinese propaganda because that's all propaganda. And that propaganda is the only thing that can refute the American and global propaganda. So now you can't actually refute the American and global propaganda at all because all of the sources you might refute them with are disallowed. They are the propaganda outlets of other adversarial states. So you're just doing the business of Russia or China when you're talking about them. And everybody knows that citizen journalists are just conspiracy theorists. Same thing with independent outlets. So all we're left with essentially is the ability to accept the viewpoint of whatever we're told by American and global state propaganda. But they tell us, hey, no, we don't want you to do that. We don't want to just enforce one idea. We want you to really weigh both sides of any given argument and come to a proper conclusion. And so what you should do is read American state propaganda from the right rather than the left. And when you read American state propaganda from the right, they're going to have the exact same story as the propaganda from the left, but it's just going to be marketed to you a little different. It's going to say, hey, we're giving you the right reasons to believe this set of things and reach this set of conclusions, whereas those other people are giving you the wrong reasons to believe the very same set of things and reach the very same conclusions. But it was interesting because I found that the Russia Today article was the only article that included the original document, the source document from the Federal Register that actually provides the DOJ's amendments to federal policy on executions. Why doesn't Swin Subsang? So if you want to look more closely at that thread or any of the articles, I posted it yesterday in the afternoon, probably around... I don't know, 6 p.m. Eastern time. 
But what do we see happening here? They are bringing back this narrative for a reason, and it's coordinated. We got the article about a month ago talking about how Joe Biden hasn't gotten the job done here. And now we have these screeching pieces from Rolling Stone talking about how bad Donald Trump is and how much he wants to kill everybody. What they really want to do is ban federal executions. Donald Trump made it possible for federal executions to be carried out in various ways if the lethal injection was no longer available, which means that Donald Trump wants federal executions in place as an option for punishment. And federal executions may well be the right punishment for certain sorts of crimes. You know, the sorts of crimes we've been seeing constantly throughout the last seven and a half years. Crimes like treason and crimes against humanity. We have seen grave crimes committed in this country. We have seen multiple coup attempts happening just below the surface that the media will refuse to cover. In fact, they cover the false reality in which those coup attempts are all justified. That is what they sell to the public. But Donald Trump wants executions in place. Even at the same time, the regime is going after Donald Trump, accusing him of every crime imaginable, including insurrection against the United States. So you got to think Donald Trump is pretty confident that he's not going to be the one on death row. So who will be? I mean, the concern here is about future presidents. Are they worried that they're not going to be able to steal the 2024 election? And if they can't steal the 2024 election, are they worried that they themselves are going to be prosecuted and potentially put to death? <laughs> no, it can't be any of that. They just want to stop Donald Trump and his bloodlust because they want to save the lives of 13 people on death row. Does that make sense to anybody? What exactly is going on here? I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree linktree.com slash I'm your moderator and I'll see you soon out on the range
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!